Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. My guest in this episode is Justin Marlowe. Justin is an author, designer, and poet, and he's currently working on his autobiography, which will be released this summer. We have a great conversation around his journey as an author, childhood experiences, musical influences, and much more. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. And with that, let's welcome Justin. All right, Justin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, sir. So to start, why don't you give it a little bit of an introduction to who you are? Well, I am a new and budding author who uh, started his journey um, in March of 2023 and kind of like just decided to delve into the world of telling my story as it was something that I felt was unique enough and tangible enough for a general audience to find to be appealing. So that's what I did. And I kind of hit the ground running, um, got some advice from a few really good people in the process, got some great legal advice in the process. And then uh, six, seven months down the road, I had a rough memoir completed, um, done a bunch of edits since then, still editing now, but found the, um, I guess, unexpected home at um, Empowered Press. And uh, which was sort of, I mean, maybe random. I don't know if it's really random or not. But, uh, you know, I know how things go. And, well, I've learned how things go with the uh, writer literary genre um, or literary discipline and the publishing world. And I was able to connect with an amazing publisher via social media. So that kind of was able to make my story even more unique than some of the others who may be in the same boat as me. And, um, you know, right away they were ready to go and we're going to publish this book in the summer of 2024. Awesome. Oh, can you tell me a little bit about empowered press? I I haven't heard of them before. Um, it's a hybrid publishing company, uh, run by Jill Carlisle, very, very hands-on kind of company not looking to, you know, like buy your manuscript and then sort of take their liberties with it. Very um, author-centric with regards to the vision that the author has at the same time, allowing for the publisher to use their skill set and their education base with regards to the literary profession and sort of give you that guidance as you go through the whole entire thing. So. Awesome. Yeah, that's like the gist of Empowered Press as I know it today. I only I signed with them um, in the middle of December, I think. So I'm not super uh, like you know it's, it's been quick. Yeah, but it's been great. I mean, I mean, uh, so far it's been it's been really great. So awesome. So to get started, like you have a really interesting childhood. I you were. Born in Washington, D.C., but you spent some years in your early childhood overseas in Germany and different countries like that. So you got to see a lot of things that most American children never get a chance to see. Can you dive into that a little bit? Like, what was it like living in Germany? Uh, like, what were your, I, I know you mentioned in your intro, like, how clean it was, which, like, that's a fascinating aspect of Germany. Yeah. And there's some, links to other things that have happened in Germany that are kind of tied to Absolutely. that cleanliness aspect, you know? So uh, why don't you dive into that? Like, what was it like? And I mean, your your story, I mean, you mentioned your race, you mentioned that you're black. Like, 
how prevalent are black people in Germany or how prevalent were they in Germany in 1990? At the time, that was actually 88 to 89. Um, okay. Maybe in a little bit of 90, but at the time it was, uh, you didn't see, and at least I'm, I say you, I mean, like I didn't see um, other individuals of color outside of my own family and, uh, or, or ex- I, I, had, I did have some extended family that were in Germany as well who are also part of military families. So outside of that, you didn't see any people, or I didn't see anybody of color, really. Now, I didn't go, I didn't go to a German school. I went to the school on the Berblingen military base, um, which, so that school wouldn't have been a German school. It would have been a Department of Defense school. Um, but like you mentioned, and what I mentioned also was, it was so clean. It was crazy. Like everything in that building was immaculate. Like the streets when I was at home in Stuttgart, immaculate. It was. I mean, it. I know. I also mentioned in the in the intro, the smell of bologna. Like we lived across the street from a deli, um, and the deli would cut fresh like the freshest bologna every morning and that sort of smell always stuck with me um so yeah i mean germany was interesting and it was the first time that i had been amongst peers of mine on a regular basis so basically it was when i was in school for the first time so yeah i had been born in washington dc lived very very briefly in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. I don't really even remember. That's why I kind of gloss over that in the memoir because I don't really remember much about it. But then in 88, our family headed straight to Stuttgart. And that's where I recall my first interactions with other peers of mine. Yeah. Your father was in the military. 20 plus yeah, years. Yeah, I, I think 21, maybe 22. Definitely like a couple of years past 20, but, you know, I don't want to like say the wrong thing. Okay. Um, your mother was a teacher too, so teachers aren't military, obviously, but that seems like it would be a very structured family setting. Is that right? Yeah, that's um one of the, I guess one of the problems I had as a kid was that it was so structured. You know, like my mother was very structured. My father was very structured. My father had a more of, um, I would say, a hands-off, almost like, if I'm not at work, don't bother me kind of attitude. And my mom was more of like a, this is right, this is wrong, don't do this, don't do that, kind of kind of thing. You know, which kind of ties itself a little bit into religion for her. She was more of a strict Baptist. He was kind of aloof from religion, at least as I perceived, perceived it at the time. So yeah, like you, like, you know, I didn't really get much um, conversation or descriptions or analysis on how to adjust for something not being either totally right or totally wrong, you know? Yeah. 
But yeah, you you use the word nuance in your intro, and uh, I love nuance. Yeah, me too. I actually can't stand it when people are not nuanced about things because there's nuance is life. Like life is complex. People are complex. Like things aren't black and white. Like there's a lot of complexity to everything, and and nuance is really key to. I think approaching the world right and and being open to other people. Like if you look at things in a black and white way, like it's easy to disregard people for one reason or another. But when you start to look at things in a nuanced way, it's like, oh, okay. So they just don't, they're just different. Like they have a different background. They look at things differently than me. And I I feel like you can understand the world better. So we're, where did you start developing that nuance? Uh, I would probably say those elements came to me when I start when I well, when my family moved to um, Louisiana. So we did spend two years in Stuttgart, Germany, and then we spent ten months in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Okay. And then from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, we moved to Derrida, Louisiana, where I still, uh, I mean, I write about it. I've talked about it. I don't understand why my parents didn't talk about the differences, like what's re- the nuances within American society where, you know, you can go from one space to another and the culture is completely different. Um, but nobody really mentioned that. So that's when I think that the nuanced element came into play with me because then I started to see humanity differently up until then it was pretty much, you know, kids being kids, kids playing freely, acting freely, Sometimes acting erroneously, sometimes not. Um, But then going to that locale, it was a completely different animal. And those nuances of right and wrong, good versus evil, you know, kind of things um, started to play into life a lot more. Uh, And it was very blatant. It wasn't it wasn't um, it wasn't subtle (laughs) at in the least. It was in your face. And I thought it was hard being an individual, first of all, that it wasn't from that area. Second of all, an individual who didn't really understand why, because I wasn't cultured there. So if you're not cultured somewhere, then you feel their culture around you, whether it be positive or negative or whatever in between, then it becomes very difficult to understand why this is happening. So you can't make sense, or at least in my position, I couldn't make sense of the why. So you slowly develop a perspective based on the why on your own, but no one's really guiding you towards it. It's not like a slight on anyone. It's just a a descriptive fact about what I sort of was dealing with. So, Yeah, I want to dive into that a bit because that's a really good point. Like when you're not from any culture and that could be just moving from one city to another or one country to another like you're not part of that culture so you notice the difference in culture a lot more but before we go into louisiana and everything i want to back up a little bit because 
the culture that you grew up with, like like living in Germany for two years, is such a unique experience. Can you, you saw places where the Holocaust happened. Yeah, we went to concentration camps. Um, Now, at the age of five, I wasn't really, I didn't know, you know, at all about that. I just knew they were historically important places to attend. You know, we went to Holocaust museums. I'm sorry, not museums, sorry. (laughs) We went to Holocaust sites. We went to museums. We went to castles. Um, the most impactful element for me personally was the arcades. Cause I was like five and six years old. So, um, yeah, yeah that was pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, just like going all over the place we had this little, um, Brown Mitsubishi Mitsubishi van. We would travel all over in. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting. And it was something that, I, I mean, it's an extremely unique experience for anyone to deal with. And, especially being someone who was from the States from the jump, you know, traveling through Europe with your family and seeing these sites that would be considered exotic to most others, you know, but for us, it kind of became the norm. Yeah. What was, what was music like? Uh, And actually, uh, did you learn German at all? Um, we had to, uh, um, at the, at Burbank elementary school, we had to learn German. Yeah. We had okay. to learn the German language and I actually won an award. Um, I think it was after either my kindergarten or first grade year, I won an award for like the best German speaking student in the, in the school. Um, nice. but when you're five and six years old, those languages, they, you know, by, by osmosis, they kind of like connect with you differently than they would had you learned them later in life. So, um, that was cool. Uh, yeah, they taught you German. I don't know any German now. Mm. Um, I know Avita saying that's about it. But uh, besides that, no, I don't know any German. But yeah, they didn't infiltrate the language um, within the student body, even though it was a Department of Defense school, not a German school. So yeah, they still did that anyway. Uh, so what was like the music scene like there? Was there much of a music scene? I was uh, so young, I could not tell you what the music scene in Germany was like. So all I knew and all I know is what was put forth to me. Yeah. And that was from my parents and from my uh, my relatives in the States. So my uncle used to send us um, v- VHS cassettes. VHS tapes yeah. of a show called Video Soul, which was um, like the BET Top 25 Countdown, we- a weekly countdown. So okay. we got to see, you know, Jody Watley and Michael Jackson and Prince and Bobby Brown and New Edition, um, Luther Vandross, uh, Barry White. You know, we got to see all this stuff. That wouldn't have been privy to us if we had just stuck to German TV, which I at the time knew nothing about. So in addition to that, though, you know, my parents, they had their own taste in music. So on these trips that I was referring to, you know, these trips around Western Europe, you know, we'd ride around in this Mitsubishi van and we'd listen to mainly Anita Baker. Um Luther Vandross, Frankie Beverly and Mays, 
and Paul Abdul and Millie Vanilli. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. That was that was I mean it was mostly um pop R&B stuff or R&B pop stuff. Uh the one the one tape that my dad did play for us a lot was Salt and Pepper. Oh nice. It was a Salt and Pepper album called I think it was called Salt with a Deadly Pepper. Uh and that was my first foray into the hip hop genre. Even if you want to call it watered down, that's fair. But it, I mean, it was like 89. So my parents weren't listening to NWA and Ice T or yeah. Um, yeah. Too Short, really, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, that was not their generation's music, right? Like that, that was more of like, it, I think it, that music was like, so you're born in 83, I was born in 85. And I think that music was more popular around people who are born probably 75 to, I would say 85 would be pushing it. That That's pretty young. That's fair. You know? Yeah, very fair. So, yeah, definitely not their generation of music, but, uh, and it, it's very bold music too when you're looking at NWA and stuff, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly is bold. It's, contra- it's a very, um, it has a lot of paradoxes within it. It's controversial. Yeah. Oh, what do you mean? What do you mean there? Paradoxes? Yeah, like how do you mean exactly? Um, well, you could have one song about one thing that maybe uh even this is a little later, like 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 Tupac. Although Tupac is a couple of years later. But you could have an artist that talks about something noble and then right around the right right next to it talks about, you know, fuck the police. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, you you have you have Brenda's got a baby, which is like a heartwarming song. You've got Dear Mama. This, this is later, I know. And then you've got uh, Ambitions as a Rider. You know, you've got, and I think that's beautiful, though. I think I think that a dichotomy within one's artistic presence makes a lot of sense, and it's great. I don't think yeah. it's fair to judge someone on one message all the time. So I think there are par- and they, I mean I think music is full of paradoxes. Yeah, I agree. And, with and that. dichotomies, you know, you have people that sing about one thing and then do another. Yeah. You have the most like El- El- I mean I'm, I'm not trying to like slander Ellen John, but like you know he's got the most he's got a, a beautiful voice, sings about some angelic concepts and then, you know, cocaine user. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Elton John's funny because uh oh, I remember being a, a kid when he came out as being gay. And I wasn't a huge fan of his music, but I I was still in like the Disney years for me. So I like I liked uh The Lion King. I had that album, uh the music album and Elton John was the uh, creator of a lot of the songs on that. And like looking back, it's kind of weird to listen to his music because it's it's a lot of like heterosexual love songs. Like or at least they come off as heterosexual love songs and it's interesting to be like oh he liked men but he was singing about like heterosexual love and it's just interesting that he hid that part of his real personality for but so is it long. is it singing about heterosexual love or does it come off that way i i think it might just come off that way but i there might be i i'd have to go back and look at the lyrics to know for sure but i i think it comes off that way and maybe that's just 
my own bias there just you know being heterosexual myself like i just interpret things that way there are times when i felt like um george michael's record sounded very hetero hmm. but at the same token on the same token then like once he came out kind of looking at it from a different perspective and i'm like oh, well maybe it wasn't or maybe it was just him knowing how to market his lyrics so that yeah. they could be sort of androgynous in a sense, maybe, or nondescript yeah. or, or non-binary. So, you know, yeah. when George Michael says, I want your sex, he's not preference. He's not giving you a preference, you know, yeah. the video does. So those visuals would have certainly like father figure definitely gives you a visual that looks hetero. Hairless Whisper gives you a visual that looks hetero. But then even before that, with his stuff with Wham, some of that stuff looked way gayer. Yeah. But it was before him entering his um, sort of like zeitgeist period as an entertainer. Yeah. Uh, the music video aspect is interesting because we, I know music videos were starting be, I mean, at least before I was born. I think before you were born too. I don't remember when the first music video was, but we were growing up around the time where mid music videos were like a huge, huge thing. Absolutely. Right? And it's kind of hard to separate the, the video from the songs in, in some regard. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't even, to be honest with you, I don't even care to do it really. Um, yeah. Especially in that era because they were so unique. Yeah. You know, so, you know, if I listen to Prince, Prince's Kiss, I go right to the video. Yeah. If I listen to Beat It, I go right to the video. If I listen to Thriller, video, Smooth Criminal, Like a Prayer, Madonna, um, even sort of like cheesy things like... Um, Billy Ocean, get out of my dreams, get into my car. You know, I, I go right to the video. Genesis, um, Land of Confusion, I think it was called. I can't think of the song without the video. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of them for me, like um, Beat It. I Every time I listen to Beat It, I, I think of that the music video, like the little knife fighting scene yeah. and stuff like that. It's really interesting how that just sits in your memory. My all-time goal is to dress like I should be in the vid video of Beat It. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, Kansas was pretty short for you, but what was what was that like? It was 10 months. My dad was in military school there. So, uh, you know, we lived on a base. You lived on Fort Leavenworth. Ah, uh, there was so many kids, though. So many kids that were my age, my brother's age, sister's age. And um, that was the fun part. Was there were so many kids around us that could play, like, right outside, like, right after school. You know, our family had um, the Sega Genesis system. But there were other families that were, like, Nintendo families. So we got to experience sort of like, all right, come over to our crib and we'll play, you know, Sega. Then we we'll go to your place and we'll play like Mario and all of that, like you know, that kind of stuff. So that was really interesting. Yeah. 
it, but it was so short that it was like it's like a blip on the radar of everything because it was it was only ten months. You lived there, you got out, and then we moved, you know, to uh, Louisiana after that. And uh, you're the oldest of three children. Yeah. How far apart are your siblings? Um, we are, well, my brother and I are a year and a half apart. My sister and I are four years apart. So fairly close. Okay, nice. So Louisiana, you were how old at that time? You were like eight or nine when you moved there? Yeah, um, when I got there, I think I was eight. Okay. And we only spent two years in Louisiana, but um, I think we moved there in 91. 91 that would have made me eight yeah so carry over into from 91 to 93 and that's uh i think where you said you got introduced to the chronic dr dre's album right yeah that's because uh it was actually an interesting situation i was like the racial stratification in louisiana was i thought it was crazy um it was like all the Black kids are from this demographic, economically speaking, and all the white kids are from this demographic, but economically speaking. Not 100%, clearly, but in general, that's how it was. And it was like the kids who were from the middle class demographic to upper middle class listened to one style of music or these styles of music, and then the kids in the other um, demographic listened to other styles of music. And that was exactly when uh, the chronic was blowing up. Now, I still kind of find it surprising that during that era, that whatever the chronic had manifested within itself as a record throughout the pop culture wavelengths, it hit these kids in Louisiana pretty hard. These kids knew this shit. They knew it really well. And I didn't. My parents had me listening to Luther and Michael and Prince and Mariah Carey and Madonna and Taylor Dane and um and Salt and Pepper, you know, Salt and Pepper too. But uh but then it was like all these kids in my class knew the lyrics to nothing but a G thing. And they were, I mean, I remember one day my teacher was like, what are you guys talking about? What are you singing? What's this song? And they were like, oh, man, you don't know it. It's nothing but a G thing. And I didn't know it. And then they were like, one, two, three, and two, the four. And then they started rapping the whole thing. And then the teacher was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then they were like, Justin, you know, you know this, right? And I was like, no, I don't. Um but because of that sort of, I guess you can call it like a bullying, shaming tactic or whatever, I did get a hold of it. And yeah. that was the first hip-hop album that kind of like blew me away. Hmm. It was such a artistic piece that delved into um, situational elements that I was not privy to. You know, like I was not aware in that time that some of this uh, material was a response to the riots in L.A., you know, a response yeah. to the Rodney King verdict. You know, I did not know that. But even though I didn't know it, I could feel it in the music. So later in life, I learned about 
those nuances, like we talked about like those nuances about the project. But at the time, I'm thinking about it as like a macro, like sonically, does it sound good? Does it sound bad? Am I am I into it? Am I not? And I was, like I said, I was blown away by it. So yeah. that was my first, uh, I would say, major exposure when it came to the hip-hop genre, and I never looked back. Yeah, honestly, that was probably one of my first exposures to hip-hop, too. And I loved, I, I memorized the lyrics from Nothing But A G Thing. And it was probably a couple years after the album came out. Because for me, it wasn't like, I wasn't in hip-hop culture at all. As a white kid in Indiana, you know, I actually look back on those years and I'm like, I remember watching uh, MTV and being exposed to Biggie and Tupac and all these hip hop artists. And, you know, it was a different world to me, but it was still like when I look back on that, I'm like, I'm really grateful that even though I was from a distance and even though I didn't really understand everything, I'm really happy that I got to experience Mm -hmm. a little bit of that, like get a taste of that. And it it was just a unique time because like prior to that, like now, like somebody puts out a song and it can be across the world in in a day. But like prior to that time, like, it traveled far. Like that was when it was starting to be able to travel far. Like West, I mean, like you had the East coast hip hop, you had the West coast hip hop, you know, I I think yeah, Puff Daddy and those kind of guys, I think he was New York. And I, I think, uh, who, 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 who'd you say? Puff Daddy, I'm pretty sure was New York. Yeah. 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 And, uh, so like Puff Daddy, Mace, all those guys, they were all working out of, East Coast, and then you had the West Coast guys, and it was like you just kind of get a little bit of it. And like, I didn't understand it all, but it was still so cool to like be somebody who otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to that, like getting a little bit of exposure at 10, 11 years old. There so. were actually pieces that I forgot to mention living in Kansas of um, that was my first exposure to MTV personally. That's when I was seven. And before school, because we had a, our school, we lived on a base. Our school was right behind our house. So it took us, I mean, a minute and a half, two minutes to walk from the home, the backyard to the school. And before, before school every day, we used to watch MTV or VH1. Mm. And in that process, within even that little 10-month span... I was exposed to Poison, Warrant, Def Leppard, um, more of the same with Michael and Prince and Madonna. Um, I was exposed to R.E.M. at that point. I think, I want to say Garth Brooks a little bit. Uh, But that was when the macro perspective on video hit me on a daily basis. Because before that, it was like, okay, all the biggest acts are on video. Yeah. Of course, we're going to see Madonna. We're going to see Michael. We're going to see Prince. You know, we're going to see Whitney. But then when I moved to Kansas, it seemed like it was, it was now you could see everyone who had a record deal kind of was presenting themselves on video. And 
that was cool. I remember that was when I first ever, I mentioned the band <laughs> Warrant. Um, I don't know if you remember, like they had their, their seminal video, Cherry Pie. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I remember when my grandma visited and like, I was watching that and she was like, you need to turn this pornography off. And I was like, this is, I mean, I was only seven. I was like, I don't think this is pornography, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, the video aspect was interesting. That, that aspect of being, I wouldn't call it bullying, but shamed, right? That shame of like not knowing the song. Uh, it was definitely shame. Yeah. Yeah. It was shame. Yeah. I think it was facetious shaming. Um, I don't know if that makes shaming better. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think that really guys, any shaming is bad, but in that one, um, moment in my life that shaming improved my musical palette. Yeah. Um, cause I wasn't actually feeling ashamed by not knowing, you know, this art form. It was more like, Oh shit. Okay. Well maybe you should listen to this and find a way, even though it was not easy. You know, my parents weren't going to just like buy me the chronic, you know? So I had to figure out a way to, get a friend of mine to put it on the tape so I could take it home and listen to it. So that wasn't easy. But then I, you know, once I did that, I, you know, like I said, I was, I was kind of like, you know, blown away by the sound of it. Um, and still to this day, like it still blows me away, you know, to have that kind of sonic um, hip hop record come out in 92, where it still yeah. stacks up today. It doesn't sound dated. It doesn't sound yeah. old. It, it just sounds it sounds kind of fresh actually, which is um, kind of amazing. There's only a few albums that I ever feel like sound fresh 30 years later. Yeah. Um, I, I would say there's a few Michael Jackson songs that I feel are fresh still. I think that, I think there's a lot of Michael Jackson material that sounds fresh today. Uh, I mean, I could delve into that. Like, I mean, I'm a huge Michael fan, so I think the I think most of the upbeat records on Dangerous sound fresh now. Yeah. I think that uh, a lot of what's on Bad, a lot of what's on Thriller, a lot of what's on Off the Wall because it's like a disco album. Uh, a little different with that regard because it's not synthetic. There's not like synth drums and sh- stuff like that, so it's more acoustic. But even the mixing on that sounds fresh, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Scream sounds really fresh now. Uh, but you know, these are the these are some of the you know he's Dre's one of the best producers of all time. Michael Jackson is one of the best artists of all time. So the ones who are in that upper echelon, I think, will deliver that sort of material. Yeah, and uh, uh, Quincy Jones is one of the best producers of all time. He makes so many great tracks with Michael Jackson. I I consider. Uh, Billy Jean and Beat It too. Billy Jean and Beat It are two of like the most sonically sound songs, in my opinion. Uh, Billy Jean, especially. Like, just you, you can hear the hi hats so clearly, and they they just move to the perfect position off center. It just sounds amazing. But yeah, I think one of his most sonic. Uh, well, a couple of them. One to me. Well, in addition to what you just talked about. But um, uh, Smooth Criminal, to me, is yeah. crazy in terms of 
the way that each individual sound kind of like shines on its own in the mix. Um, on Dangerous, the song Give In To Me, um, the song Why You Want to Trip On Me, the song She Drives Me Wild, On Bad, uh, Leave Me Alone, Dirty Diana, On History, Scream, This Time Around, Too Bad, Tabloid Junkie, They Don't Care About Us. I mean, I think these are, I mean, the mixing and the mastering on those records are so amazing. Um, And they transcend the, the decade, the era, the genre. But, you know, there's other artists who do the same thing. Like, I feel that way about, like, I feel that way about, like, Madonna, like, Lazla Bonita. I think that that song, like, transcends um, a lot of different spaces. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the Pointer Sisters records do the same thing. But, you know, I, I could d- dive deep into all that, like, really yeah. easily. I mean, the, the Dr. Dre album is... So, I mean, it's called The Chronic. You're born on 420. You're mm. born on 420, 1983. Uh, and I remember you mentioned you would get some facetious remarks regarding your birthday. When did that start? Because, I mean, for me, I didn't know what weed really was. I mean, other than just on MTV, you would see the This Is Your Brain on Drugs commercials, right? Right. That didn't happen to me until I was, like, 26. <laughs> you, you didn't. Yeah, like nobody made fun of, uh, not made fun of, but nobody said anything about your birthday until you're 26? Nah, not until, well, let me rephrase that. Maybe not 26, maybe like 21. Because okay. I remember we had a, um, uh, I don't think it was a dare officer. We had some sort of like health class situation in high school where the premise was, um, on one day, it was like, well, this is a 420, and a 420 call is based on marijuana. And after that, I was, everybody was like, oh, well, he's born on 420. And it was a kind of a joke for that one day. But it was when I started to go out more and um, have to present my ID on a regular basis where people mm. would look at it, and they'd be like, oh, 420, ha-ha. You know, that was a kind of like a... Like it, it's almost annoying now that it happens so much, but it definitely happened a lot. Were you? I mean, were you ever a smoker at all? Uh, I delved into that a little bit um, in college, but smoking isn't really my thing. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, I I don't condemn it whatsoever. I don't give I don't give a shit what someone else does with their leisure time, but it just wasn't really for me. I use it a little bit, but not not anything crazy. I mean, I, I, I sometimes I go with um, like I like edibles from now and that, from now and then. Yeah, that's what I usually use. I have to be careful though, because sometimes those will. I mean, for me, I've found some, and I'm like, man, I feel like I'm on another planet. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I, I just barely got into like over the years. I started to understand dosage and everything, but when I first tried edibles, like most of them were. You didn't know what you were taking. Mm-hmm. Some of the some of the things you eat taste delicious, and it's like you can definitely overdo it with edibles. And it's a it's a different kind of ride than smoking too much. So. Yeah, I've had a few times when it's been like 
I would take an edible and then I'd be like, oh, I don't feel anything in 20 minutes. And I'm like, let me just take a few more. And I'm like, yeah. oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a common mistake. And I've done it many times myself. Um, Louisiana, interesting that uh, David Duke had a successful run for governor in Indiana. So he actually became governor. And No, he didn't. He didn't. He, didn't. he lost. Oh, he lost. Okay, okay. So, uh, yeah, David Duke ran for governor in Louisiana. Um, he lost. And he, he had been trying to... I had to look up a little bit about him. I knew, like, of him. I, know, I knew he was, like, a grand wizard of the KKK. And, yeah. Um, I, did, I really didn't know much about him other than that. Like, Louisiana was felt like a world away in the 90s for me. You know, I was in Indiana or Illinois at the time. It's a world so. away now. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, it is strange to think that in 1991, there was a Grand Wizard of the KKK, even though I guess he, I mean, the, the guy seems like he is just full of shit. Like, the guy seems like he's just a con artist for the most part, um, from what I gathered from him. Like, he was a Democrat in the 70s and 80s. Then he switched. So he ran for president in 88 uh, or was trying to get the Democrat nomination for president. He lost, switched to the Populist Party. And then right after losing in the election for president with the minority party, he switched in 88 to the Republican Party, claiming that he was no longer a racist or an anti-Semite. And uh, and then he ran for governor in 91. And even though he lost, it, it's still kind of crazy to think that in our lifetime, a grand wizard of the KKK was running for a major political office. Absolutely. Like, and, and you go into the atmosphere for that. Like, so let's talk about it. That was, that was a mind fuck. Man, like that was a crazy. And the thing is, I didn't know anything about that stuff. Yeah, you know, at the age of eight. So you're, I'm going there, and in school right away, you know, the students have already taken their political sides when it came to um, that particular gubernatorial run. Even if not, you had kids who would tell you that their parents were Duke supporters or that they weren't Duke supporters. And then, you know, you kind of have to learn, well, what does that even mean? Um, at least for me, you know, for me, I wasn't, I wasn't from there, but regardless of that, you know, you're, we're talking about eight, eight year olds. Yeah. So, you know, these kids were in the trenches <laughs> when it came to those political divisions and, you know, I think there were just so many, so many parents at that time that hadn't moved on from like Brown versus Board of Education and who were still sort of hanging on to, uh, I guess, uh, like some white supremacy, yeah. really. And they didn't want 
even if they were to say something like, okay, cool. We know we're going to have black teachers, maybe black principals, black sheriffs, and our kids are going to have black friends. Then it was like, well, don't have too many of them or don't date one of them was kind of a thing. And to be able to see that in addition to the way like the political climate in the early 90s in that state in particular was eye-opening. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, Politics at the age of eight is kind of wild to think about. Um, And I would imagine none of the kids really understood anything, I would imagine. They're just doing what, saying what their parents are saying at home, right? I mean, that's my assumption. Like. my own thoughts. I didn't have thoughts. I didn't have my own political thoughts until I was right. 14, 15. The kids, the kids are parrots of their parents. Yeah. Um, or not, I mean, maybe it's their grandparents, maybe it's their uncles and aunts, which the, the kids are the parrots of their, their general culture at home. Um, and yeah, that was so prevalent. I, and it wasn't like the kids knew anything about the politics, but some of the kids would literally tell you, well, he was a Klan member, so that's cool. My my grandpa was a Klan member. Mm. You would get that sometimes. That's wild to think of. Like, it's it's a wild thing to think somebody would say that with pride. My grandfather was a Klan member, proud of that. It's just a really weird thing to wrap my oh, head Oh, some of that stuff was said with so much pride. Yeah. It was like the grandpa was like King Tutankhamun, <laughs> you know, or, I mean, I, I know he wasn't like an amazing king, but yeah. um, any king who did something good, they would they would use those references sometimes. Because even if it sounds weird to you or to me, there's 30 other students who are like, yeah, yeah. my mama was a, sewed the... Confederate flags on the Klan outfits back in 64. Yeah. What was the, what city in Louisiana was, was it that you were in? DeRitter. It was in Beauregard Parish. Hmm. What was like the closest big city? Uh, we used to go to Shreveport a lot. Okay. Okay. But Shreveport is a fairly impoverished area, isn't it? The whole I mean, I'm not surprised. Louisiana isn't like the most yeah. well off, of course. It was, I remember we, my dad and I went, um, cause I was in Taekwondo for a little while down there and we went to some tournaments, um, in New Orleans and it was like a long trip <laughs> for us to go from Deritter to New Orleans. It was like yeah. four hours, maybe not four hours, but a definitely Atlantic trip. We, we were, we were, we were really close to Texas. With, uh. You, you mentioned Confederate flag sewing, uh, somebody being proud of sewing a Confederate flag. And the Confederate flag's always been interesting. I'm, I'm very much a free speech kind of guy. Like, I, I believe people should be able to speak what they want, and then people should be able to criticize whatever is being spoken. I've never, I've never really understood the, the South in... I have mixed feelings about like stature removals and stuff like that, but in general, I don't, I don't understand the the pride in the Confederate flag. 
Like it, it's kind of a, a weird thing to me. Um, I've never heard a really good explanation for it. And I, I would be open to someone explaining it, but I've just never heard of it. And I, I know it's, <laughs> there's a lot of people it doesn't sit well with. And it just, it seems like, well, why, why you can just have an American flag. The American flag shouldn't be offensive. And if it is, people can deal with it, you know, but there's a lot of, I mean, there's, there's racism around the Confederate flag. There's racism around uh, the Civil War and and the Confederacy in general. Have you ever heard any? I mean, you were in the South for a while. Like, has anyone ever explained Confederate flags and and pride in the Confederacy in any like logical way? Well, logical, absolutely not. Um... I, the thing is about that particular symbol or the symbols that you mentioned when it came, you said, um, you know, like statues and street names and things like that. These are all efforts that were made 40, roughly 40 years after the Civil War ended. It wasn't like they lost the war and like we need to instill our pride it was after some of the primary or prominent soldiers generals etc were starting to die off and some of the um confederate ideology was going to be looked at as primitive backward sadistic etc etc so in their defense you have the movement of the Daughters of the Confederacy who move to start instilling their narrative, which is referred to as the Lost Cause narrative. The Lost Cause being their cause, the South's cause, of a genteel way of doing things that benefited everyone. So in their eyes, it was like, we weren't we didn't have sadistic slave owners or masters it was a way to do things where the slaves were happy on their plantations and the masters were happy in their role as the rulers or the masters of the universe it doesn't analyze any like we said before any nuances or any at at all but so this daughters of the confederacy narrative is becomes very very popular and the overall mentality isn't lost within its politicians. So when they start saying things like, well, Robert E. Lee's about to die. Can we name this as Robert E. Lee? Stonewall Jackson's about to die. Can we name this after Stonewall Jackson? Can we name this after Nathaniel Bedford Forrest? You know, can we make sure that the kids know the KKK isn't like a isn't really that bad? They're more like saviors of of our society. Most of the people down there don't care. They're just like, that sounds good to us. So you have the rebel flag come back into prominence and, um, you know, as a symbol of pride for their own heritage and their own quote unquote lost cause. They can say that however they want to say it, but 
when you start to see the Confederate flag being sewn into the jackets of neo-Nazis in Germany, what does that say about your Southern cause? I'm not familiar with that. Like, so you're, are you talking about like Nazi Germany or are you talking about? Uh, no, neo, neo, like 90s, neo-Nazis. Okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with that. That's really interesting though. Or, or when you see like, um, uh, for example, um, the, one of the most popular uh, murder cases in history is the Emmett Till murder case. So you have these two individuals who definitely committed murder admitted to committed committing murder and then they come home acquitted of murder individuals are waving the confederate flag as they come home now if it's a symbol of southern heritage and that's purely where it ends then why would you be flying it around like that yeah yeah i mean there's uh like i said i i believe in free speech and i, I believe without Freedom of speech, you you don't you can't have freedom essentially. Yeah, um, I, I but do you do you believe in hate speech though? I think it's it's a complicated topic. Um, it is it is complicated. That's for sure. It's a very complicated topic. Like in general, I guess it it depends what you mean. Like, do I believe people can be hateful with their speech? Absolutely. I'm very reluctant to support like laws that penalize speech. Even in like Germany, like you, like certain areas in Europe, you can't make a joke about the Holocaust or whatever. And I can understand why they have that, but I think it's, I think when you can't make jokes, like when you can't talk about something, it's, it's hard. It, it's hard to, the problem with hate speech to me is you're trusting the government to be honest with enforcing it. And then you like, it, it comes down to trust with the government and I never trust a government. So you have to trust a government to be enforcing it correctly. And you never know when like the tide turns and those same laws that were protecting one group are turned on that same group or another group or something like that. So speech, hate speech laws, specifically laws, can be a sticky area. I, I'd love to hear let your. Let opinion. me ask you another question. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's a, a fair response. Um, it is slippery. I think because like then you can even analyze like so what's hateful, what's not. Yeah. Um, slippery slopes definitely exist. So if it comes to like, let's say like obscenity. Um, I'm not saying you agree with this, but some people would say, like, you shouldn't be able to. I'm not saying you, like I said, I'm saying you agree. Some would say you shouldn't be able to ride around with your car or your truck and have a picture of a vagina on your on your flag. Yeah. It's obscene. It would be considered obscene. You also couldn't have a. You couldn't do the same with a Nazi flag either. So then why wouldn't the United States apply the same logic to the Confederate flag? In terms of obscenity, not free speech. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, and I, 
I don't support people. I don't really support the Confederate flag at all. Like I, when I see it, I'm like, why? Like it, to me, it's not, I don't believe the people should be arrested for it or anything like that, but I'm like, why do it? Like, it, it's just, but you will have those though, that know like what you're saying and what I'm saying. Yeah. And they will do it just to troll people. Cause they can. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and I mean like what you're saying touches on pornography and that's when I I'm typically anti-censorship, but then I can find a conflict in the way I believe that because it's like, well, I don't think children should be exposed to porn and that is a form of censorship. So I'm it's not like something I can create a clear line of like, Oh, this is right. And this is wrong. Like there is nuance to it. And it's, and, and it's not something I can completely articulate on my end. Yeah, then you have the issue, like when you talked about children being exposed to porn, like, I don't think that children should be forced to be exposed, exposed to porn, but the same way I wouldn't say that I don't think children should be forced to be exposed to any kind of music personally. But I remember like, when I was a kid and the parental advisory label was became like a, a statute on whatever obscene music. Yeah. It didn't eliminate my ability to obtain said product. Yeah. Maybe I went to this clerk and they were like, no, I'm sorry, sir. You're only 13. You can't buy it. And the next person on the ship was like, yeah, whatever. Here you go. <laughs> yeah. But it probably caused a lot of albums to get stolen too. Like, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, it, it actually ended up making album sales higher. Yeah, that had the parental advisory um, label on it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the whole argument about censorship and um, free speech—it is interesting. Um, I, I, I always hope that we are removed or further enough or re- further removed from individuals who find pride in flying a rebel flag, but we are not. Yeah. We are clearly not um, at all. And I just don't understand or think that it's appropriate whatsoever. It is a symbol. Uh, I'm not even saying it's a symbol of hate. It was used as a symbol of hate. And so because it was used that way, I think it's unanimous enough for us to, as like, forward-thinking human beings understand that it shouldn't be okay just because you individually say, well, no, it's part of my culture. We don't live in a, in a and we don't live in a country that is, um, we don't live in like, you know, it's not like North Vietnam and South Vietnam, but they're different yeah. countries. We live in the United States of America. I mean, that's not the case anymore in Vietnam. I mean, like at one time, um, it isn't North Korea or South Korea. It is the United States of America. We have a flag. Yeah, we have. You can live in a certain country. The Confederate States of America is not a country. Yeah. Oh, and it was a it was a literal rebellion against the United States, which is yes. And like, it's like people don't really know this, but it was. The vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevenson, declared in his cornerstone speech that it was going to be the first nation founded upon white supremacist principles where the where the white man will dominate the Negro. Yeah. 
that's in his speech. Yeah, I, I so like, do you think it should be a crime to have the Confederate flag? Like, what it what do you see as being like a fit thing? Like, if somebody because to ban something, especially to ban something that you can make, you know, it, right? It's it's like with guns now. It's like, can you really ban guns when you can three D print them? Probably not. I'm not for banning guns anyway, but like a flag is much easier to, easier to create than a gun. So what do you think, let's say you ban it, what do you think like an appropriate response is to somebody who waves that flag, puts it on their truck or something like that? It's a good question because I don't really know. I, I, I do think that banning it would be appropriate. I do. Then I think that if that happened in America, you would have an uprising like crazy of people that would protest and you'd have politicians that supported those protests. Um, you know, cause everything's not concrete. You know, there's nothing that's a monolith across any, any, um, board at all. But I think it should be like obscenity. Whatever is obscene, like whatever is obscene. Like if I can't, if you and me can't walk outside butt ass naked and not get an obscenity charge, like then I think whatever charge that is, that should happen to the same people that fly the Confederate flag or the Nazi flag. Um, if it's a defunct nation that has had reparations built up against it, um, the Confederacy has had a little bit of that, but not, not even close to what like Nazi Germany has had. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I think it should it should come with its ter- it, it should come with some sort of um, litigious legal punishment, in my personal opinion. Hmm. Okay, we don't live in the Confederate States of America, so to start to do that and argue it, and it's a symbol that can be twisted in terms of its use for um, hateful purposes. So, I just don't think that's a good way for us to unite ourselves at all, even though we are not united. Um, but if we're going to make uh, attempts towards that, I don't think that having symbols that are rooted in division and hatred are okay. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I guess where I'm at is I feel like I feel like we have a societal responsibility to shun bad ideas and to shun hatred. And I don't think you can, I don't think you can make hatred illegal. Like it's just, no, you it's, can't. It's, it's, all. it's going to exist no matter what, but you can, you can increase knowledge. You can have people learn and understand reality better. And then you can have really bad ideas or hateful things shunned more and more so that they basically become obsolete. I'd imagine the Nazi flag is probably illegal in Germany, but right. it would be interesting if you can have a hypothetical world and, and see, okay, what happens if, if it was never made illegal? Does that flag go away, or does it persist more like the Confederate flag? Well, think about that's um, about Nazism is like, yeah, you can make the symbolic pieces illegal, you can't eliminate the mentality of Nazism. Yeah. Um, but I think that, in my opinion, those symbols that a nation is okay with, 
say a lot about that nation. So clearly we know you cannot ban someone's thought process. Yeah. But I don't like the fact that even today in the United States of America, you can live in a state or a city or a town where they're okay with Confederate memorabilia, street signs, street names being up. That is a promotion by the government, whether it's local, federal, state, whatever. That's a promotion of those ideals. Yeah. A symbolic promotion. Like I said, you cannot legislate thought, but you can legislate symbols that are on public ground. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Um, it's harder when you talk about flags because that could be private ground, you know? Yeah. yeah. And the statues, I, I have mixed feelings on. Like, I don't, I don't really care for, like, a Robert E. Lee statue anywhere. Like, I don't really think it serves a purpose. I just think that we should be careful not bringing it too far. Like, we have, we have presidents that own slaves. And mm-hmm. it's just a reality. Thomas Jefferson brilliant man but it had some dark shit going on too like he, had, yeah, he sure. had slaves and stuff like that and i don't think we should be tearing down statues of him but he also wasn't rebelling against the united states so it is quite different when it comes to confederate statues in my opinion and i think um i think it should be up to the local population what they want and i i would hope that they make the right decision like a federal law would be a little bit uh, that this is just my feelings. Like yeah, sure. I don't, I don't, I feel like people, I feel like local governments are more attached to the people that they're governed by. The federal government is this entity that we have very little interaction with, but it can influence our lives pretty heavily. And I think most things, as much as possible, should be handled by the most local government possible. And, but again, it's sticky. Like it's a very complex issue. Cause like, what if, what well, if, if you'd gone to those local governments in the of Louisiana, they would have been all for any racist person who ever did anything. They would have been like gung ho about it. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I don't, I don't, I don't trust local governments to do the quote unquote right thing. Yeah, I I do think a federal mandate against Confederate imagery is appropriate when it comes to presidents. I think that's a little different. Um, I don't know. I, I that's a that's a great point of inquiry because I don't know if that's um because like part of me feels like all right. Well, what if it was uh like a presidential monument? Uh, with respect to Andrew Jackson, well, I think Andrew Jackson's biggest fallacy was the the uh, Indian Removal Act, you know, yeah. the Trail of Tears. Yeah. That's disrespectful to Americans. Yeah. Um, but he was a president. You know, J- Washington was a president who owned slaves. He's overseen the deaths of slaves. Yeah. Um. These are heinous. I mean, but at the same time, you have individuals like 
Martin Luther King, who he's a great man. Some people, not myself, some would argue about his like, you know, erroneous extramarital affairs and say, well, this places him in an immoral category. Um, so it's difficult when you're talking about morality um across the board, but I think it's a more easily legislative statute when you are referring to individuals who fought for the side who wanted to beat the United States. Yeah, I agree with that. And like Martin Luther King, I know about his extramarital affairs and stuff like that. I'm not one to judge about that. Like people are people are people and like people do like we talked about a lot of this conversation, people are complex and they have duality. Like we're all, we're all capable of good, but we're all just as capable of, of evil. And it's, I don't know if I would call that aspect of him evil, but it definitely flawed. It's a definitely. A, well, the thing about that also is even with regard to what you just said, you could look at individuals who fought for the Confederacy. Fighting for the Confederacy does not make a human being a bad person. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't even make that person an immoral person. Because at that time, a lot of um, what the individuals in the, in the country of, of the United States looked at, they looked at themselves as like Mississippians or Virginians yeah. or Alabamians. They didn't look at themselves as Americans. So just because you stood up and fought for your state, even though it was in rebellious territory, it doesn't make you a bad person. The cause is bad, for sure. Yeah, It doesn't make that individual a bad person. So I don't think that it, it's necessary for us to place names, namings, or names of individuals who fought for this cause on American property. But that's where it's okay for it to be in Confederate museums or Civil War museums so that it's not, you know, I, I don't believe in the phrase of erasing history. I think history is, if it's happened, it's happened. Yeah. You know, I don't think that taking a stat down erases anything. Um, I think it's kind of dumb to think that it does anyway. But I think that historical concepts, whether or in, in constructs, whether they are good, bad, ugly, or whatever in between, should be in museums. I can I can support that. Like there there is a big difference from a statue that is kind of I mean it's an idol, right? Like a statue is a form of idolization um, in statue form. It's very different than having that in a in a museum. And you can have. You can even have the statue in a museum. Like at one point, people erected this statue uh, in support of this even, you know, 50 years after it happened. We don't support that. So it's not out in public to give praise to this person, but it is a part of history. So we preserved it in this museum. So there's a there's that nuance that I'd I'd probably be a lot more supportive of that. Like, and you're right, like you're I don't I don't think taking down it's funny because it's a narrative, right? And I, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. And we'll talk about politics every once in a while. And we don't agree on everything politically. And one of the things I mentioned to him, and I'm like, in politics, 
truth isn't what actually wins. It's narrative. It's the most powerful narrative that wins in, and that catches hold. And, and that's what people cling on to. It's not necessarily that truth is upheld as the top thing. It's what narrative wins over. And I think that's true of pretty much all politics. And I mean, that's where the phrase, uh, uh, history is written by the winners. You know, that's where that kind of phrasing comes from. And, it, and Which is funny true. because the Confederacy lost and they still got yeah. to write, they got to write their own piece of history. Yeah, um, it is very interesting. Which it, which is, in my opinion, that's an American fallacy. That means that, that means that, um, you had individuals in Washington during the at the end of the Reconstruction movement. Well, I mean, you had Rutherford B. Hayes, the president who won. I think it was 1877. I could be wrong about the exact year. But you do have individuals who have nothing to do with the Confederacy. Who are just like, all right, we're done with this whole Reconstruction movement. We're going to move on, go back to the ways, go back to how things were. Because people in other areas of the country, not just the South, didn't find the situation in the South to be completely heinous. So, yeah, the South loses. They lost. But if you have individuals from other places who don't really care or who maybe aren't in support of African-American improvement. Maybe they think, well, they shouldn't be slaves, but they also shouldn't have jobs equal to white people. Then you're in this sort of like middle ground where you're not going to completely condemn the South. You're just going to say they shouldn't be slaves. Whatever else happens is fine. Yeah. Yeah, I'm... It is interesting. I mean, there are some very erroneous arguments and uh, about history, like oh, slavery ended in eighteen fifty eight, whatever it was. Um, things didn't just change overnight, you know. Things didn't just, you know, sentiments didn't change, and the sentiments carry on, and they have a big, big influence on reality for a lot of people. And it didn't change in a hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you feel like the biggest difference between Louisiana and Kansas was? Kansas is more in the middle of the country. Louisiana is pretty deep South, about as South as you can get, actually. I mean, I think Texas is a little bit more South. Florida is maybe a little bit more South. Well, Florida is definitely more South than the Miami. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but culturally but very different. As though. far as like culturally, Louisiana yeah, 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 yeah. is about as south as you get. Like Alabama and Louisiana are like south, Mississippi too. Like, and those are like where there was a lot of racism, a lot of historical division against black people. Yeah, these are the, probably like South Carolina, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, Georgia. These are probably the most racist states in America, I guess. I don't know. But the, the biggest difference, though, like I said, I only spent 10 months in Kansas. So that was kind of um, and it was on a military base. But 
One thing that I do recall about living in Kansas was that there was a general sense of togetherness when it came to all the kids. Hmm. So we could have our disagreements and all that, but nobody called you out for your hairstyle or your skin color. Um, there was there were no ethnic um, challenges or religious challenges, as I can recall, which was the complete antithesis to what was going on in Louisiana. Louisiana was like the first thing you heard was, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Why do you talk this way? Um, who does your daddy support? <laughs> mm. um, I, like, I didn't know anything about uh, like the, the, you know, as like a young boy, you know, you go down there, you, maybe you have a crush on a girl or something. I didn't realize that in Louisiana, the first thing they're going to ask you was like, is she white or black? Mm. It was really weird. Like it was, it was like, what, like, why, what, why do you care? But um, those kinds of things were were so different. Um, the weather was really different. The weather was like kind of nice in Louisiana, but uh, culturally though. It was it was wild, um, but I also found a lot of um, I, I found a lot of fruitful elements in my overall development, though, as a person. Like my dad and I connected a lot in Louisiana. Uh, we did a lot of things physically together. I mean, like physically, like we went to go running, go to the gym, uh, exercising, kind of stuff. Like I connected with him on like football, sports, athletics in general. So those were those elements that were fruitful. I was really getting into, like I, earlier I said, I mean, the chronic. Um, I really delved into other aspects of my um, artistic, creative endeavors. Um, like even just listening to music. I bought my first CDs down there. Uh, my first CD bundle was, it's kind of embarrassing, actually. It was, um, I bought a three CD pack of, do you know who Snow is? <laughs> mm, I don't think so. The Canadian rapper who has Infomer, that song? Mm-mm, I'm not familiar. Well, you wouldn't be. It's pretty bad. Anyway, I bought the Informer single. I bought, um, you know, Rex and Effects. All I want to do is zoom, 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 zoom. And oh, yeah. I bought Rex and Effects. And I bought Michael Jackson's Dangerous album. In like one CD pack. Uh, only one of them made its way into like future rep listening, which is Michael Jackson's. Um, but these are th- these are other things that were pretty cool about living down there. So it wasn't like it was just a horrific racist experience. I don't think anything is a monolith in the in in a, in, a, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, clearly there can be things like. You wouldn't want to live in like the Holocaust or be a slave or, you know, but I'm just saying for me in the early nineties, there were, there were a lot of bad things that I experienced and there were a lot of good things that helped me develop into who I am today. And a lot of those things are parts of what, um, I, what I, what I've written about and how my whole entire story, my whole entire, um, my memoir 
is mostly about minor trials that aid you into who you become as as whoever you are on that given day. So my memoir ends in, I want to say, 2000. 2000. I didn't want to go too far. So I go from like my birth to 2000. And, um, but so much of it is based on these little nuances that developed me into who I became at that time um, with regards to experiencing micro microaggressions as an African-American in suburbia, um, different parts of suburbia and how those little bits and pieces sort of like intertwine and dissect themselves. Um, and then also like part of, how I developed a good friendship with my best friend throughout these nuances and his nuances that he experienced as well. So there's all these little pieces that uh, are part of the overall puzzle that end in 2000 for me. Hmm. That's I, I, maybe I'll write part two. Maybe I won't. I don't know. You, uh, you moved to Virginia after uh, Louisiana, right? Yeah. 93. Uh, yeah, what was Virginia like, and what what part of was it uh, like Newport News or anything? Like where where, where you were? No, it's close to D.C. Okay, Northern Virginia, Stafford. Okay. Um, yeah, we moved there in '93, and what was different about Virginia was Louisiana was very. There's a large African African American population, or at least it seemed like there was a larger one in DeRitter. Mm. We moved to Stafford and it was there was like no black people at all. So yet the population was pretty rural. Their demographics were pretty rural. But I moved there and it was like there was nobody who was black. So in Louisiana, at least you had some allies that were the same color as you. In Virginia? No. Yeah. Can I I have a question. Um as a black person in Louisiana, Virginia, and Kansas, you mentioned some differences. Within the black population around your peers that were of the same race, was there more pressure in Louisiana to be a certain way as a black person? It kind of sounded like that might be the case, but I'm just curious. You mean to fall into certain stereotypes? Yeah, like, obviously, if you're dealing with, obviously, white people might have that expectation of you to fall into a a certain stereotype. But would you say among, like, black peers, there was an expectation for you to be a certain stereotype, too? That stereotype didn't become prevalent until I moved to Virginia. Okay. Um, in Louisiana, things were so separate. Mm. Um, yeah, they were racially based, but they were also uh, economically based too. So, for someone in, um, like myself, outside of school, I was never around anyone from other economic situations. In Louisiana, I'm sorry, in Virginia, it was way different. Mm. So in Virginia, not so much when I first moved here because there were almost no other black people at all, which was not comfortable. Yeah. I did not like that. I thought it was so off-putting. 
Because all these kids looked at you like you were a freak. Hmm. And all they knew about you, you not you, but they, all they knew about you, you was um, what they saw on television. Yeah. So it was weird. I mean, Black History Month was weird because kids would make fun of you just because they would say things like, you know, every learning, like a, there's a slavery, they'd be like, oh my God, it's a slavery unit. Were you a slave? Haha, <laughs> was your grandpa a slave? Like dumb stuff that was like the kids would chuckle at, you know, but. To me, it was kind of, it was really, really hard to deal with, but you got to suck it up and just deal with it. Yeah. Um, but slowly, yeah, that was, that's a good point. My, my brother just said this, <laughs> you know, when you look at the globe and someone says, oh, look, the Niger River, is that the nigger river? Ha ha. It's like the dumbest joke you could ever make. Kids just do it all the time. And, um. But as I got into middle school, the influx of African-Americans was pretty heavy and it felt good because you got to see more people that looked like you looked like you. Um, but then there was also that that's when that pressure that you were referring to. That's when it started to occur more because. Then you had other African-Americans who probably or not probably they did expect you to act a certain way yeah. if they didn't act like you, if they weren't from the same demographic, because just being, just being black doesn't mean you're going to, you're from the same demographic yeah. <laughs> at all. So that's when that pressure started to settle in. And that's when things became difficult on a different level. And I also had to make decisions as to who I was going to become and who I was going to be. You know, was I going to adhere to stereotypes or was I going to be myself and just do whatever I thought was best for me? Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, in one of your excerpts, you, you had a, a situation where I think you were at a mall or something. I think your mom was with a friend and uh, they were commenting on an interracial couple. They called an IRC. And, right. That uh, was my mom and my aunt. <laughs> okay. That, I mean, that's interesting because I think uh, people would expect white people maybe to comment on an interracial couple a little bit more than a, like a black family would or black person. Right. Would. But I, I mean, it, it, that's clearly not the case. Like, and, and I've, I've heard, I mean, like anyone can be racist. Anyone can have opinions on races of people. So like, what, what is your interpretation of that situation? I really, I, I remember you ended that excerpt with, uh, they were, do you remember how you ended that? It was the, I don't have it written down anywhere, but it was, it was indisputable. The assumption was that theory was indisputable. Oh, right, right. The assumption was that their perspective was indisputable. Yeah. Now that's a that's a you can that's not me accusing my family members of being racist. I don't think yeah, that's racist I, I at didn't, all. Hope I didn't imply that. Yeah, no. Oh no, no. I'm I'm just having a conversation. I I think that 
prejudice and racism are different. So I feel like what they were saying was prejudice and it was rooted in their perception of relationships and sort of like who should be with who now my perspective even as a kid was who are you to say who should be with anybody yeah you know and i don't really care if you make a joke about anything i'm totally open to jokes but my issue was that if you're young teenage offspring hears these kinds of jokes, it can really kind of like mess with their perception as they're developing. Yeah. I'm not saying the joke was bad or wrong. I don't care. Like I've said, I've made some of the most offensive jokes probably ever, but um, you got to choose and you pick and choose who you're around when you do it. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I'm, I'm just, Saying, I think that those comments were prejudiced and maybe re- um, rooted in a little bit of hate, jealousy, and facetiousness. Mainly facetiousness, but nevertheless, it still left a stain on me. Yeah. Can I? Do you mind me asking? Uh, how would you describe the difference between? Racism and prejudice. Would racism be more of an act based on the prejudice, or what would the differentiation be? Well, racism would be the mentality or the structure of an individual group or race or ethnicity being better than another. Okay. Prejudice is just not liking someone. Someone could hate you and I, because we have glasses. They may not feel like they are better because they don't, or we are less than them because we do. But I could not like someone with blonde hair. But when you start to want to say that this group shouldn't be able to do this because they are this color or this ethnicity or this religious or religion, I'm sorry, this creed, And then when you start to say that there's a hierarchy here, that's when it becomes racist, as I understand the term to be. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess where it gets a little confusing is like, could a white person hate a black person for being black but not be racist because they don't think of themselves as better than that black person for being white? Well... Well, well, hold on. Can they hate a person for being black, yeah, but not yeah. think they're better? Yeah. So you you mentioned like racism is where you you think you're basically better for being a certain race. But what if a white person hates a black person or hates black people in general, but they don't see themselves as better? They just don't like black people. Is that what would the reason be? Jealousy. I mean could be some kind of jealousy like would that be racism still well if you break it down like that if if a white person is jealous of black people but doesn't see themselves as being better 
like an inferiority complex, you know? Like they could see themselves as inferior, but they feel, I don't know, threatened by it. I, and that might be the position of some people. I don't know. I, well, that's, just a, that's a, man, that's a huge population. Uh, if you ever, uh, I was just doing a little bit of research a couple of weeks ago um, about like interracial unions during the 18th and 19th century. And so much of that is based on jealousy mm. and, um, and sexual hypocrisy and sexual um, submission or assumed submissive roles. It's, it's, it's crazy. But um, if you do have those jealous moments, can they re- result in racism? Yes. If you're talking about if that individual or those individuals don't actually feel as though their ethnic their, their ethnicity makes them better, then maybe by definition it wouldn't be hmm. racism. I was just curious. Like it just yeah, yeah. That's a good question. You might have to look at like how they treat people, though. Yeah. You know, because there's individuals who have been jealous of others who maybe don't look down on the actual other race, but they might still like murder and kill and maim at will. Because maybe they're cultured to do that. Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask it's, I mean, I understand what racism is. I understand what prejudice is. It's, it's not something I've often put articulated though. So it. That's why I was wondering is like, is racism more of an act and prejudice prejudice is a a feeling, like a thought? Or so like, either either or. I, I think racism can be an act and a feeling and so can prejudice. Yeah. Like what if I didn't like you because you had blonde hair or brown hair and I wanted to kick your ass and I, and I beat you up? Yeah. That's my act of prejudice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not racist. Yeah. Uh... What about the this notion of like fetishizing a different race? Like, can you dive into that a little bit? Because it's interesting. I know it's a reality, but where is uh, where is that line? Because some people might be attracted. I mean, like some people are attracted to people with certain hair colors. You know, some people are attracted to people of a certain race. Where does where's that line between fetishizing and being attracted to well i think it's a big difference um i this is my opinion i think that fetishizing is blatant Hmm. and you make reference to those sorts of things when you when you fetish like hypothetically if i were if i were a, a gay man and I fetishized you for having glasses because I like a guy that has glasses on. And I were to like walk up to you and be like, oh, man, I love those brown glasses. They're so fucking hot. Hmm. That's different than me just like like an amount of glasses. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. It, it, it seems like a fairly hard thing to articulate, though. Right? No, it's not. It's it's not easy. Um, 
and then actually and in my book i i broke i break some of that down into like the porn industry and how the porn industry sort of takes those minor fetishes and runs with them yeah oh yeah um it could be anything but they do that so um but a fetish is like a kink sort of um but a preference is a little different like yeah. if i loved women with black hair i don't have to tell you that i don't have to make it a big deal i can just make it prevalent in my like dating choices or my sexual choices yeah but to like overdo it and make a point to reference said quality can become fetishy in my opinion someone else could tell me no i don't i i've never studied human sexuality before so you know, I've had friends who have enlightened me on a lot of things, and that's been very helpful. But that's where I think it's different. Um, and if you're looking at race, you could have individuals, especially if we're talking um, antebellum, postbellum, Civil War period, you might have individuals, and this is just off the cuff, I don't know. But you might have individuals who are of opposite races and they get together and right away they're like, okay, no, get away. No, 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 no. Now we have to go back to our regular lives. So maybe that's fetishy. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not. Maybe it's just maybe, – maybe, maybe that could be just acknowledgement of the times yeah, and how you have to react. Um. So I, I understand it's a slippery slope, and I understand that it's not uh, cut and dry. But I think there's a difference, though. Well, and you touched on something important, like the porn industry, which is, I mean, in our lifetime has exploded. And uh, I, I don't look at porn really anymore, but I, at one point in my life, I didn't think much of it. And I did. And... I mean, there's a fetish for everything. I was raised on porn. Yeah. Like, I mean, there is a fetish for everything in porn. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's people that love interracial sex, like black, I think ebony is what they call it in porn. There's people that like dwarfs. There's people that like feet. There's a fetish for literally everything. And there's some, absolutely. There's some fetishes I think are pretty obscene. Like I, I don't understand rape fetishes. I think it's a, a really a weird thing, but I, I suppose people can do it in a safe way if, if they're playing fantasy. It's, yeah, and that's because there's nothing wrong with it. If, yeah. if they do it in their own consensual manner. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, that intersection with uh, fetishizing and the porn industry is very interesting, and I, I'd imagine it has a big role in it, too. Yeah, when it comes to race, I don't um I think that it's it's the stereotypes that have occurred over hundreds of years that fuel the fetishes. Yeah. You know. I agree with that. Yeah. And if individuals want to get into their own little fetishes <laughs> based on race and it doesn't hurt anybody else, 
who am I to say that they're wrong? Yeah. It's not my thing. It's just, I mean, I think it's kind of weird, but whatever. Do whatever you want. Well, there's also a, an aspect of consent wrapped up in that. Like, if one person is fetishizing another and the other isn't aware that they're part of a fetish and not an attraction, I don't know if consent is the right word, but like one party in that doesn't understand the the reality of what's going on. So it Yeah, it's a it's a complicit nature or lack of lack thereof of complicity. Yeah. Um but I don't know. Yeah. I don't do that, so whatever. <laughs> what actually at what point did you decide to write your memoir? Like what what brought that on? Uh, it was a early March, 2023. I had ideas that I've had for a long time about how I felt like my story was something that was twofold, not just informative, but entertaining as well. So I just went, I just started like, literally, I just started writing. Yeah, and I started writing, and it wasn't that good right away. Uh, I was being way too wordy, and I wasn't really adhering to like proper paragraph structure. It was more just like a conglomerate of thoughts. Um, but over the few months after that, it shaped itself out a lot more. And even since since then, I've gone through like four edits. I'm going through another edit, like literally now. I mean, mm. the release date is August 27th, 2024. So there's there's time there. But, um, you know, I, I do a lot of promotion on my social media through, which I'm sure you've seen through like, you know, excerpts from things. And I also post things for my poetry as well. But um I just thought that my story had relevance right now and kind of looked at it as being in an in a unique space separate from a lot of other memoirs and I don't know that to be true I just thought it to be true so I also kind of felt like if I feel this way about this piece of art, then why shouldn't I just go about it? Yeah. Because otherwise I'll just be pissed off like five years from now if I didn't do it. And I'd be like, well, why didn't I write my memoir and see what it could, what if maybe a million dollars? Yeah. You watch somebody else with an interesting story that's not the same, but has some parallel tears and you'll see their success or their recognition for telling their story. Right. And You'll be like, why the hell didn't I do that? And I, and, but it, but it's been so, it's gotten so much attention since I started um, that I am so glad that I did it. You know, I've gotten so many people that have just said like, hey, this is really great. I love reading it. I love waiting for you to post your next piece. Um, those little pieces of encouragement are, are very, very healthy to, to a creative individual. So, you know, those are great. Um, and this is the process, you know, 
it comes out in the summer of 24. So 2024. So, you know, and I'm talking to you right now on the 17th of January, I would love to do another one of these in the summer, you know, to, you know, that was just in my head, honestly. Yeah. I was just yeah, really yeah. Thinking like, yeah. As it comes closer. But for now, I've got to really just focus on for me, developing my brand, developing my persona and working with other people who are creative like yourself, who are doing the same thing, you know, yeah. so that in some creative space, we can all develop together. And then in a year, two years or whatever, it could be a situation where it's like bona fide, you know, something really, really crazy that's developing. Um, so does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. Do you, uh, do you, when did you start writing? Like, as far as like, do you accredit anyone with like teaching you how to write when you were younger? And do you have any like major influences that uh, you've read and like really inspired you to start writing? Um, for my creative, well, my mother was a really good, is a really good writer, and she was the first person who ever tore apart my writing. Mm. And that was when I, I mean, I might, I might have been like third, fourth, fifth grade. And I remember, you know, they give you projects as a kid and I would be like, here, can you look at this? And then be like, scrape that, scrape that, scrap that. And I'd be like, God damn, like she just like tore through the whole thing. Um, Like I, I remember I made a, I made a statement in the book about how my papers looked like a subway in Harlem in the 80s like just like straight up like just drawn through uh so that was an impetus to get good at writing cuz i didn't want anyone to have to tear through my shit like that yeah but my biggest influences from an author like from author perspective um i'm reading uh michael harriet right now uh back as a kid i used to read a lot of stephen king and a lot of uh michael crichton um, outside of that, I was not a big reader. I got really, very alienated from the reading process, um, as a teenager. Yeah. Interesting. But I'm such a, once I noticed that my brain was working in a very detailed, nuanced, litigious manner, I was like, well, you got to start writing because... That's how you're going to express yourself. Yeah, I'm sure you've learned a lot about yourself from writing everything you've been building up over all these years, like from actually putting it on, putting pen on paper. I'm sure you've, I'm sure it's a different level of exploration than just being in your head, you know? It's been the, it's been the best therapeutic um, endeavor that I've had in my entire life. So, you know, like starting, this is nonfiction. So, you know, so it's like, it's a memoir. So it's based on my life. And then dealing with, um, I started writing another piece already, which I'm taking a step back from, because I got to edit the first one more, but um, that's a fictional piece. But just the whole thing has been like, for me, putting pen to paper and getting thoughts out there, if if it's writing, um, with a, with an attempt to create a novel 
if it's writing with an attempt to create a piece of prose poetry, that is for my brain, very, very healthy. And um, I mean, I regret not doing it earlier, but it's okay. You know, we don't always come into our own at the right time or or the time that we think we should. So it's been, it's been amazing. Like I've, I've, I, I went through some therapy a few years ago and writing has helped me tenfold compared to that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's never too late to pursue what you love. I'm, I'm 38. I'm two years younger than you. And, uh, no, I don't reveal my age. This is not good. I don't like that. <laughs> Sorry. I'm kidding. I'm, 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 I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> you seem pretty open about it. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm 38, pushing 40. I'm not worried about age. Like I released my first music a few months ago. Like, whatever, man. Like, as long as you're pursuing it, it doesn't matter when. Yeah, you know, just got to keep pushing. You got to keep persevering because... As long as you're not dead, life doesn't stop. Yeah. So, you know, there's never any reason to stop pursuing something that you feel in your heart is great for your well-being. And that's when that when I embraced that, my perspective on a lot of things started to change. Yeah. You know, like my own happiness, my own mental health, um, you know, artistic expression. Those sorts of things, you know, it was such important to me, an important factor to me to just keep doing what I thought was right for me. And, you know, there's annoying parts because, you know, like last night I'm editing this and I'm just like, man, I already have this done. But you know what? I need to edit it. I got to edit more. I got to edit more. And I'm like reading through it and I'm pissed off. But at the same time, like you got to do it. It's fun and nauseating at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, Justin, it's been amazing talking to you today. Um, before we wrap up, do you want to give listeners a way to find you on social media or contact you if you want anyone to contact you and then anything else you feel like sharing? Um, yeah, if you want to contact me, you can hit me up on Instagram at uh J Marlowe Writes. That's J M A R L O W E and W R I T E S. If you have something more personal to say, you can hit me up on email. It's just justin.marlow and the number one at gmail.com. Um, I've just been very thankful to hit, sit here and talk with Artie about, you know, just so many times. To- I didn't know it was going to go this way, and I think it's been awesome. I love, no, I, I, I love free flowing conversation. Um, I'm going to be starting a, pod, a podcast soon with my friend, Mary, um, and uh, that'll be something that's going to be interesting. Uh, you can follow her at uh, my quilts kick, quilts kick ass if you want to. Um, but uh, yeah, but I just love these kinds of chats and I'm very appreciative of you, Artie, and your, you know, oh. your platform and, you know, allowing me to allow me to come on so soon, you know, after just, you know, re- sending you a message a couple of days ago and then boom, it's like, yeah, we're here. Yeah, man. I love it. Well, Justin, thank you so much. I love the conversation. All righty. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Thoughtfully Mindless. If our conversations resonate with you, consider leaving a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your streaming platform of choice. Your ratings help us grow and reach more listeners. 
Don't hesitate to spread the word about our podcast. It's one of the best ways you can support us. I'm always eager to hear from you. So find me on Twitter at TMConvos or follow us on Instagram at ThoughtfullyMindless for a peek behind the scenes and more thoughtful content. And if you're looking for additional ways to support the show, visit FractalZoo.net where you can find exclusive t-shirts and apparel. Each purchase contributes directly to the podcast and allows us to keep bringing you content that matters. Thank you once again for lending us your ears. Until next time, stay thoughtfully mindless. Mm-hmm.